Welcome in to My Wheelhouse Podcast. Today is Easter, April 4th, 2021. I'm your host, Seamus Swoosh McNamara, joined as usual by my dear, dear friend, Al Biddies Natola. Biddies, how are you? Hey, hey, doing well. Just got off a uh, vacation in the Smoky Mountains, feeling happy, feeling rested, and uh, happy Easter. Yes, that sounds majestic. And joining us for the first time, his inaugural visit to the My Wheelhouse Podcast, good friend, Steve Trudeau, host of the We Got Balls podcast with friend Mikey Almeida. How are things going on? You're rocking a Markel Fultz jersey over there. How's life? Well, clearly I'm a Magic fan, so life is not good right now. Uh, but everything else is great. Happy Easter, guys. I'm just happy to be here, not so much for famous, but because I get to meet the world's famous biddies face-to-face, <laughs> which is amazing. So thank you for having me again, Seamus. It's great. I'm very happy to have you on. I'm sure this will be the first of many uh, visits. This is our uh, back end of our home and home. I already went on your pod, had some good time talking about the early thoughts on the college basketball season. I remember a lot of our discussion focused on how real Gonzaga is as a contender. So we can bleed that right in. Last night, we're coming off the final four games. Baylor made quick work of Houston. Not much to talk about there. Maybe we can think a little bit about how Davion Mitchell has improved his status as a legitimate NBA prospect. But the clear storyline, headline topic, is Jalen Suggs and the Gonzaga Bulldogs and their incredible overtime victory over UCLA, who put up a fight unlike anyone has been able to against the Gonzaga Bulldogs all season. So what are your takeaways from that game, from Gonzaga in, in general? Biddies, I know you've been extremely high on Gonzaga and Suggs from the start. Uh, do you think that the, what you saw last night in terms of a more reputable opponent, in terms of their shot making and ability to really throw some punches Gonzaga's way, do you think that's something that Baylor could repeat tomorrow? Yeah, I, I definitely think that Baylor gives you every reason to believe that they're a team that can – give Gonzaga a good game. Um, you know, the the last time I was on the podcast was right before March Madness started. I said that I thought it was going to be a favorites tournament. And then the second game in, Oral Roberts beat Ohio State. I felt very wrong. But in the end, here we have number one versus number two all season. We've been waiting, truly waiting for this game since it was supposed to happen, I think, in December. And I'm looking forward to it. I think that Baylor's been having a really strong tournament. Gonzaga chasing history, going for the perfection. In a way, I think it's helpful that they had this experience because Baylor should be able to hang with them, should be able to play them tight. And like you said, Shay, they hadn't done that all year. So to have their back against the wall, to uh, to trust in each other in the foxhole – was, I think, a good experience. And you really got to give credit to UCLA for making the run that they did. Steve, when you heard my uh, bringing up of Suggs, I want to praise him because I think he's fantastic. And I think he's going to be a top five pick and whatever team ends up with him is going to be happy. You're throwing me thumbs down 
why are you anti-Suggs? Those three plays that he had at the end of overtime, the block, the pass, that obvious – I know he banked it in, but still a banked buzzer beater from 42 feet. It's pretty extraordinary. Why are you lower than consensus on Suggs? Lots to unpack here. Lots to unpack. So first, I will be audi- uh, audience, honest with the audience. I am an old man, and I went to bed before overtime. <laughs> so I missed those three plays. I know he banked in the three-pointer. So did he call glass? I don't think so. So we're going to throw that one to the side. Suggs, in general, I think he has a great body for an NBA prospect. He's strong. He's a great defender. Like, Seamus has been on Suggs from the beginning. Tell me how good Suggs is. Um, and I haven't watched Gonzaga until the tournament, so this is my first experience with Suggs. He looks like a great NBA defender. He probably could grow into his body, become more professional, more polished with the skill game. But when I watch him play, when, I, when I'm drafting top four guys, right, I want a guy who's going to come in, dominate. He's the man. Like, he's going to be the playmaker and do things great for you. That Gonzaga team is such a well-polished machine that Suggs doesn't shine, man. He does – he plays well. He does the right thing all the time, but he's not showing me superstar right now. So that's why I'm a little down on Suggs as a top four prospect. If the Magic draft him, I'm going to love him. But if not, I'm going to trash him. Uh, but going back to what you were saying, Biddy, it seems like you're a big Gonzaga believer, right? You seem very positive about Gonzaga. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm definitely rooting for history. Might have some financial incentives for them to <laughs> go ahead and win the championship. So I am, uh, I am pro Gonzaga. So my thoughts and and watching that game against UCLA. First of all, UCLA. Oh my God! Like I did not see that coming. They balled out Gonzaga, took them to the to the wire. But there's one thing that really concerns me, guys. And I looked at the box score after the game, and it's not so much the player stats that concern me. All right, so the game went to overtime. There was 235 total minutes played in the game. How many minutes do you think were played by the starters? For which team? Gonzaga. Uh, 178. 216. The starters played 92% of the minutes in that game. It's fine. Which is insane. So the bottom line is this team has a depth problem. And if they can get in foul trouble early, Baylor Bears, watch out. Sorry there, Biddies. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Baylor is definitely a force to be reckoned with. But what I liked about Gonzaga is that different guys stepped up at different times. It wasn't just – I mean, the Suggs block and then to gather the ball and then make the assist was an incredible play. Um, but you had Timmy starting, first of all, taking the charge, classic, uh, big white boy move. And then starting off overtime, he was cooking in the post. I think he scored six straight. Um, Kister, he provided some shooting when, uh, when UCLA was making its push and took the lead. I like that. I like that it wasn't all on one guy. Um, so when they don't have depth going into the bench, I'm not as worried about that because all season, no, you can't run 92%, but elimination game, sure, go for it. I just, but, uh, go ahead. I was going to ask you, Seamus, do you think, like you, you've played a lot of basketball in your days and you've watched a lot of basketball, you know, tired legs, it's a long tournament, man. Do you think that this can continue? Do you think that, you know, by the time they get to the end of the road, they're just going to be gassed? I mean, when – when I'm looking at the Gonzaga team, and 
using a framework of 90 whatever percent of minutes being played by starters, that, that paints a incorrect picture of how deep this team is. I would say Gonzaga is one of the more deep teams in the country in this tournament. I mean, college teams don't have talent. And just because they're relying on their headline guys when it's crunch time, I'm okay with that. And I think that Suggs, Timmy, and Kispert can handle playing 37 of the 40 minutes if, if they need to. And I'm moving forward against Baylor. What we saw being successful for the UCLA team in a way that hasn't been successful against any of other Gonzaga's opponents is they just shot the lights out. It was crazy. And they, they got a few, maybe I don't want to say it was luck, but they were, they were hitting in a manner that they don't normally hit. Johnny Juzang is absolutely a, 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 a subtopic, but a, a different type of headliner from the tournament so far. He's been incredible. He had 29 last night. I think he had 28 the game before that. He's probably going to be a top 40 pick now when before the tournament, he wasn't even on a draft radar at all. And the people are comparing him, depending on what podcast you listen to, he could be Reggie Miller or he could be, you know, people think he's going to be incredible now just because of what he's done in this tournament. And the other two guys that were playing really well, Riley, and then uh, Tiger. Yes, Tiger. Thank you. Th- those were career games for those guys. I-, I watched I watched UCLA a couple times just because I've heard Ju Zhang is exciting, and I knew that he transferred away from Kentucky, so I wanted to see a little bit just if I could have any inclination whether he has a sh- legitimate shot to make it at the next level. And those other guys were absent. They're not relevant players. And for them to have the big games that they had against Gonzaga, I don't think that's repeatable. So moving forward to – Baylor, uh, it's, it's a matchup of the heavyweights. Uh, Davion Mitchell, if, if besides Gonzaga and their pursuit for an undefeated season, Davion Mitchell is probably the number two storyline of the entire tournament. Coming in, he probably wasn't a first-round prospect. Now most people that I respect have him in the lottery. I see it. The cliche and lazy comparisons to Donovan Mitchell with him being number 45 and actually having the same last name are – are surprisingly reasonable. Uh, maybe he's more of like a Kyle Lowry, awesome defensive guard. I understand he's 22 years old, but Baylor and Butler, I mean, Mitchell and Butler for Baylor, along with the big white guy with the mullet, they're going to have to be shooting lights out. I think that's the only way that you're taking these guys down. You have to outpunch the greatest offense this season and in recent memory. And I just, I've been on Gonzaga since the start. Biddy's has been on Gonzaga since the start. You were asking how legitimate Gonzaga was when I came on and talked with you about the start of the college season. Their offense is too potent. They, they were struggling offensively comparative to what their normal output, output is in the first half. And then the second half, what we got from Timmy, who is a ludicrously efficient, what is he shooting, 70% from the field in the tournament? He's a draft prospect out of nowhere, similar to Ju Zhang, who probably wasn't going to get drafted and he was going to be making his checks over in Azerbaijan or something like that. But now he's averaging like 23 and 9. He's, he's incredibly efficient. If he's in the post, he's Kevin McHale. He's going to drop step and turn around the left shoulder and then up fake and then scoop a left-handed shot when you're on the other side of the paint. I don't see them losing. I, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think it's going to be a fantastic matchup. I don't know if it's going to match the explosiveness and the excitement of what we just watched last night. Uh, I'm sad for you that you fell asleep and you didn't watch the overtime. It was very exciting. 
but I had a hard time going to sleep after. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was definitely amped up. But I mean, Suggs is, I feel like you need to be really careful about your scouting or just thought processes on, on prospects when you have such a small sample size of exposure. And, and Steve, I understand that you hadn't been looking at a lot of Suggs, but I just want you to be aware that what you have from him is you know, you're noticing the defensive eliteness, but I, I think there's a lot more there offensively. And I think he does pop off the screen for me. I, I just, I just don't understand where he isn't there for you. Okay. So let me just get to that. Right. The way you speak about Jalen Suggs, yes. you know, you talk about this top four uh, draft slot, like these guys are can't miss prospects. You're speaking of them as, as if they're going to be John Morant. Right. And I think that Suggs, I've not seen this star quality yet. And I'm thinking more like Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon's a great player. He's a fine player, but he's not going to change your franchise. I don't look at Suggs and being like, if I have Suggs, everything's better. We're going to be great for the next five years, 10 years. I don't see that yet out of him. So I'm not saying he's a bad player by any means, right? But I just caution the listener to be like, oh, Suggs, he's going to change my franchise. We're going to be great now. Orlando Grass Suggs, we're going to be in the playoffs next year. I don't know if he's that type of guy who's just going to take your franchise and change your fortune overnight. And that's where my hesitation is. I think he could do that. I, really? I think, he could, I think he could. I mean, if, I think right now, based off of the allure and excitement that comes narratively from the tournament, the likely draft order in terms of who gets picked one through five is probably Cade. And unless something crazy happens tomorrow, I still think, and it, obviously it depends on which team lands where in the lottery. I, I think Mobley's going to go two. I have him a little bit lower personally, but I think Mobley's two. I think Suggs is going to go three. And then it's going to be the Ignite guys, probably Green first and Kaminga fifth. My personal rankings, I, I also have Suggs at, at three, but I have Mobley a little bit lower. But when I'm thinking about these five guys, I think all of them have the capacity to be a franchise changer in, in different aspects. Um, I, I think Suggs is going to come in day one and is going to be a reputable and dependable perimeter defender who has an extremely high IQ, who can fit into any system. And because of his vision and his IQ, I don't see him failing on at minimum the defensive end of the ball. Uh, offensively is, is where it's a little bit different. I think he's improved a lot, a lot, like dramatically as a playmaker, as a guy whose vision has stretched uh, both into the half court and in transition, obviously highlighted by that pass that we saw last night. But that, those are plays that he's been making all season long. And in his shot, there was, there was a portion of the season for the first, I don't know, 12, 15 games where he was shooting like 36 plus percent from the field. And it was really exciting because previously at Minnehaha and in his younger years, he, he was inconsistent from shooting. So I'm, I'm, I'm still, I like his stroke. I like his form. I think mechanically and in terms of his, his energy transfer, it, it's fluid. Uh, you can tell he's a little bit bulky, so that's why maybe it doesn't look as nice as other things. But I think he has the ability to extend his range deep, which is one of the more important skills for perimeter creators, especially off the dribble. I think I like him as a catch-and-shoot guy, not as much as other shooters in this top five. But I, I think he can come in and to put him in the same discussion as Aaron Gordon, is I, I think that's pretty silly. I, I think he deserves to be – I don't think – Maybe he's in the same tier for me as Ja was, but he's below Ja. I agree. 
He's definitely below Ja because Ja had that exciting, explosive charisma that did pop off the page. Suggs is far superior as a defender and is going to be able to contribute at a level that even now Morant isn't, and he probably never will be able to defend like Suggs is. But I, I think that Suggs has a handle on the game and has a competitiveness and a mentality that might be a little bit different from what we saw at Ja at, at Murray State. So I, I think he actually could be in that tier with him. But, I mean, these, these five guys are all deserving number one overall picks, in my opinion. I think this draft is going to go down historically as one of the better draft in recent memory. I just get in really quick, and I will back off the Jalen Suggs, and I will just say I'm wrong, and you can be right after this. The way you described him, all right? Yes. Hear me out. Listen to these characteristics. Amazing perimeter defender. Yeah. Very smart. Knows where to go with the ball. Great court vision. Okay, catch and shoot guy. Sounds like Marcus Smart to me. I'm not drafting Marcus Smart top four. I'm sorry. Yeah, but he's better than Marcus Smart. I, I also just love the, the Jalen Suggs mentality where he chose to go to Gonzaga because he wanted to play for a winner. His very first game, it's national TV, number one versus number three. He absolutely looked like he belonged out there. And we've seen it throughout the season that he is a very composed player with the exclamation point coming last night with, uh, with his play in overtime. Obviously, that bank shot. He called game. Still counts. Still counts. He made it. So maybe he was trying to bank it. When you're shooting from 40 feet away with that momentum. <laughs> yeah. Who you got yep. tomorrow? Gonzaga, Baylor, Biddies, who you got? Come on. Gonzaga. Okay. <laughs> Steve, who you picking? You're going to go against the green? I'm a contrarian. Yes. I'm taking the Baylor Bears. Okay. Now, I'm still going to take Gonzaga. As far as the rest of the tournament, anything that specifically stood off the page, uh, as far as those other top five guys, we saw Evan Mobley have a really stellar start. Uh, his first handful of games helped him propel his USA team past Kansas and a couple other good squads that they weren't favored against. Uh, he was incredible. I think he averaged 18, 9, and 4, three blocks a game, was ex extremely efficient. Uh, shot from the perimeter. He's a playmaker from the elbows. Defensively, he's a freakazoid. Uh, I was excited about him. In his final game, uh, he understandably kind of got maybe outsmarted. It would be the best way to frame it by Drew Timmy, who, as we spoke, has been incredible. And Cade's, Cade's performances was, was disappointing, but I, I don't put a lot of that at the feet of Cade himself. A lot of it is the teammates being miserable and not being able to hit the side of a barn. The last five minutes of that game against Oregon State, he, he barely touched the ball because everyone tried to go ISO mode. Uh, what else did you see? Are you excited about maybe draft risers? We said Ju Zhang. There's uh, Timmy. Max Abmus from Oil State has been incredibly exciting as maybe the next uh, off-conference scoring guard to enter the NBA. Chris Duarte in Oregon, Franz Wagner in Michigan. There's a couple guys that were exciting that kind of changed their stock. Uh, what stood out to you, Biddies, from the tournament uh, overall? I, I think that with the guys at the top – you nailed it. It's disappointing what we saw from Cade, but there's so much more that you can judge him off of. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sweat it too much on him. Um, same as Mobley, saw really just a continuation of what we saw all season. Um, not really blown away by any other performances in terms of somebody taking a leap from. Uh, you know, maybe late lottery into like, oh, wait, should they be 
top five. Um, so I was, from a draft perspective, my mind does not change very much. I know you didn't watch a ton of the games, but did anyone stand off the page in a manner that you weren't expecting, Steve? Uh, I actually really liked the the sharpshooter from Gonzaga, the senior. Uh, what's his name again? Can someone help me out there? Senior? Corey Kispert? Yeah, I, I like he's a junior, but, right? Oh, I'm sorry, he's a junior. Okay, well, he's coming yeah. out. He's coming out this year, correct? Definitely. Uh, and I think he's a nice tie into what our future topics. I think he's going to end in somewhere like 15-ish range, right? At the lottery, uh, somewhere in that range, a little higher. What you're saying? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think he would be a nice fit for a team like the Celtics, who could use like a really good perimeter marksman. But I, I, I like Kisper a lot. I didn't. I found out about him in the tournament. I think he reminds me a lot of like a Kyle Korver type. Uh, player so but like you said I didn't watch much of the tournament and uh, maybe I would have been higher on Suggs if I wasn't so lazy and, and stayed up for overtime last night I'd be with you guys if uh, I didn't yeah, fall you, would have been, you would have been riding the excitement train uh, also yeah, incre- so- incredibly insulting that you said we should draft a sharpshooter when we just <laughs> took Aaron Neesmith 14 <laughs> has he really panned out though no we're gonna find no, out that, we'll that's I'm why still it's insulting <laughs> But to blend your two takeaways together, I think that is my, my biggest takeaway, obviously coming through with the prism, thinking about draft prospects, hoping to see something I haven't seen before, understanding that the small sample size of the tournament shouldn't be something that you pay too much attention to, uh, where if you see a poor performance, maybe kind of brush it under the rug. But if you see a huge performance, maybe that's something that you could highlight in your future uh, draft scout. Uh, those guys that are in that tier after the top five, all the way to 15. There's a handful of them. A lot of them were there. Uh, Kispert's one of those guys that I think, depending on his performance, could have landed anywhere between 6 and 15. I think he'll probably end up shaking out somewhere around 10, 11. But those other guys that I have right after the top five, I don't want to say I was disappointed because I kind of saw what I was expecting already from them. It was just they didn't do anything extra. Moses Moody, Scotty Barnes, Keon Johnson, with, with a lot of them had – or, or not a lot of them, Keon and Springer had early exits with Tennessee. They lost in the first round. That game was a tough watch. They, they both didn't play that well. Keon Johnson's incredible defensively, and offensively he struggled with a shot. That's the story I've had with him all along. Scotty Barnes in Florida State, they, they made it an okay distance, uh, fell apart when they ran into Michigan. Franz Wagner proposed some interesting questions to Scotty's scout offensively which is something I was concerned with anyway, similar to Keon, Scotty Barnes, awesome defensively. And then Moses Moody was, I thought he really had a window to take Arkansas to the next level. I understand that when they run up against Baylor, there's only so much you can do because of how good and how well oiled the Baylor machine is both on, on both ends of the floor and with how inconsistent the rest of his teammates are in Arkansas, but he didn't, he really didn't shoot the ball well. And offensively, he, he wasn't the player that I was becoming to expect that he could be. So those, those guys, those four guys coming into the tournament, Moody, Scotty Barnes, Keon Johnson, and Kispert, I, w- I was really looking at those w- with, a, with a magnifying glass to see how, how they performed. And obviously Kispert's still going, and he could be the Dante DiVincenzo of the championship game. Maybe he scores 35, and maybe he's the guy that we're talking at being maybe the seventh pick rather than the tenth pick. But a lot of those guys have kind of over underwhelmed. Um, and just, uh, I got to say just one, one thing about Kate. he was inefficient, but in, in, in these two games, I, I thought he was a, a freakazoid defensively. And, and, and the more I think about this draft, 
Mobley is getting a lot of the shine as the best defensive gem uh, among this crop of players, purely because of his upside as a rim protector and his ability to lock down a, a high efficiency uh, interior defense. And his, he's an awesome switch defender on the perimeter for a player his size. But what I'm seeing with Cade is, is the propensity to defend more players and do it at an extremely high level at any aspect in the game. He, he picked up 94 feet in a manner that he wasn't doing it a lot throughout the regular season. Uh, I, w- I was seeing him switching onto bigs. He was starting possessions, guarding fours and fives. And, and I just think that there's no way that he's not an extremely plus defender at the next level. I understand his shot wasn't following, falling, but I mean, he was shooting 35% on over 10 attempts a game from three. Like he clearly had the offensive burden. He ordered, he averaged over 22 points a game in the conference tournament and the NCAA tournament. He, I think he averaged close to three steals and blocks per game. That's like Anthony Davis stuff. So I, I'm, I'm still all in on him. I, I want to make sure it's well known that he's still generational. Don't overthink him losing because his teammates can't hit the side of a barn. He's still incredible. I would still give a left kidney to get him on Boston Celtics. And I just want the listener to appreciate this and know this. Uh, Seamus just went through all these numbers and I swear to God, he is just pulling them out of his head. He has no paper in front of him. He just knows this. Like it's his, it's his job. It's crazy, man. I, I mean, I, I just, I think about, I think about Kate a lot. I think about him a lot. And, uh, <laughs> he makes me excited. I'm excited. He's going to be a better NBA player than he was a college player because of how compressed and really stagnant the, the offensive game is in college, the spacing and just the flow of his offense that he's going to be able to employ at the next level, even if he just has one shooter on his team. Because back, back in Oklahoma State, I don't think he had a single other teammate at shooting over 32% from three. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's disappointing. I understand. I give him credit for staying there when they didn't even know if they were going to be eligible for the, the postseason in general. And when you talk about uh, his relationship with Mike Boynton, the coach there who actually just resigned and I think could bring some credibility to the Oklahoma State basketball program, which hasn't really been much of anything in recent memory, I give him a lot of credit for, for, for holding out, holding tough, uh, changing the, the fortune of, of some of his teammates for the better. A lot of those guys are going to get contracts overseas, are going to get some G League looks that previously they wouldn't have even sniffed. And, and I want to make sure that he gets his proper due. But with that said, I think we can move on to the next topic of contention here. I think that we have the Orlando Magic represented with Steve's chest wearing a Markel Fultz jersey. We have the Chicago Bulls represented in location, specifically by Biddy's out in Chicago. So why don't we jump to the trade deadline highlights? Um, one of the more active deadline days that we've had in recent memory. I forget what the number was, but it was like 40-plus deals, I think. Something out of control. Yeah. But the headliner, what was it? Do you know how many I, deals it was? No, no. I think it was like a record for most deals and most players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Um, the, the headliner, and it came early in the day. It was a surprise. Uh, leading up to the deadline, there was a lot of talk about Orlando selling off a lot of their players, but Vucevic was not one of them. The, everyone thought Vucevic would be staying put after notching his second All-Star game appearance in three years. Um, he's been incredibly efficient and exciting and uh, a nice offensive hub for a struggling team. He gets shipped out to Chicago for Wendell Carter, a couple first round picks. And then Orlando does a handful of other things. So just that we'll, we'll, we'll touch the Orlando magic first. So in totality, they got rid of Vucevic, Evan Fournier and Aaron Gordon. And they brought in Wendell Carter, Otto Porter Jr., RJ Hampton, Gary Harris, 
and five picks, including three first-round picks, one of which they'll get this year from the Chicago Bulls. That's top four protected. Expect that to be somewhere eight to 16, and a couple seconds for, from Boston for the Evan Fournier deal. Um, as a diehard Magic fan, Steve, how are you feeling after this deadline, this blow-up, <sighs> this complete transition to a, to, a, to a full rebuild? I have mixed emotions. <laughs> My heart is broken, but I know it was the right move. It's like, you ever seen the scene of Lassie? Either, or maybe it's Lassie, like, get out of here, you stupid dog. Go, go. Like, it makes you sad that you got to let it go, but it's for the best. That's what happened with the Orlando Magic. Uh, I was really surprised that Nikola Vucevic was shipped out. But I understand looking back. So here's the deal, right? You just re-sign Markel Fultz. You just re-sign um, – oh, God, I'm blanking on the podcast. That's great. Who's my, who's my small forward that's hurt? Jonathan Isaac. Isaac. Thank you, Jonathan Isaac. I'm a diehard Magic fan. Go figure. <laughs> um, so you, you extend the window of those players for another four years, right? Evan Fournier is going after this year. Aaron Gordon's gone after next year if you keep him, right? He wanted out. Nikola Vucevic had two more years, I believe, in his contract left. So they're resetting the timeline, right? Four years. That's our timeline now. The next two years, we're going to the trash heap. We're hoping two years after that, we're going to be good. I personally, I think they were the moves that had to be made. Um, I don't know what the hell Chicago's thinking uh, and picking up Vucevic. Uh, so he's tricky, right? He's a two-time all-star in the last three years. But, man, he does not make your team better. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> Uh, he's a very skilled big man, right? He's a, a maestro in the paint, right? He can just get whatever he wants. Defensively, good God, man, that guy is just like a screen door in and out, opening for everybody. So he's not going to make your defense any better. He'll get you some points in the paint. He also doesn't make guys around him a lot better. Once the ball gets to him in the post, it's uh, he's not a black hole, but like once it gets to him, it's probably going to stay in his hands. So I don't know what the hell Chicago is doing. Uh, I mean, the Celtics, why not, right, with that move to get Fournier. And then the Nuggets, good for you guys. Like, that was an amazing deal. So we can talk about the individual uh, teams that picked up pieces from the Magic. But in general, uh, I, I like what the Magic did. I actually want to ask you, Biddy, because you are in Chicago. I know you're not a Bulls fan, but you follow Chicago sports. Can you tell me a little bit? Because this is – you're going to do my scouting for me. Wendell Carter Jr., right? Uh, I know Otto Porter. I watched your games. Get him out of here. He's trapped. <laughs> but, uh, but Wendell Carter Jr., I, I'm, I don't know yet about him. So can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, I think the, uh, the draft profile on Wendell Carter coming out was sort of a Al Horford prototype. Versatile, big, not, not very large, but plays good defense, makes the right decision. It's always been a poor fit in Chicago with him and Laurie Markkinen. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're not too invested in Mo Bamba because that also seems like it would be a bad fit. Um, but he's a solid player. He, he's been – his progress has been stunted by some injuries. And where you're where – you're, Planning for the future, I can see Wendell Carter being a solid starter. Probably not a franchise changer, but mm -hmm. definitely a good guy who, who, if he can stay on the court and really develop some more um, in a good developmental system, which is we not, don't have not a given down there in Orlando. Uh, um, but yeah, I would say you can be pleased with Wendell Carter, but 
not uh, expect the world out of him. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm further in than you are, Steve. I think you should be way more excited. I, I think you just sold Nikola Vucevic, who's only an all-star because he's in the less deep conference in terms of top-end talent. Uh, you, you said it yourself. He clearly isn't a ceiling raiser. I, I think there's a lot to be said, and he doesn't get this reputation because the skills that he has are different than the traditional uh, good stats, bad team guy. You know what I mean? He, he's not like a, a scoring, flashy, uh, selfish player. He, he's, he's efficient, um, even though he does have a tendency to get a reputation as a, a guy who's a good passer as a big. I think you're actually pretty accurate, and that doesn't get talked about about him being more of a back, black hole than you would expect. It's not his fault, though. I don't blame him because Steve Clifford draws the plays up for that. Like right, he right, right. Has the point guard dive into the paint, dump, 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 dump off the ball of Jesus, and they just let him operate. So it's not like he's being selfish on purpose, but that's just right. how they operate in Orlando. No. So I think getting two first-round picks, one of which I, I think, personally, I don't think the Bulls are going to dramatically improve their standing. If you're looking at the Eastern Conference this year, there's three teams at the top. We know who those are. And then after that, there's going to be a team – morass that's somewhere with Miami, Boston, Atlanta, and then it, there's teams you after that. to say Charlotte? There's teams. Well, I mean, they just lost, they, they lost yeah, LaMelo, no. and now Gordon Hayward's oh, out for a couple, couple weeks. True. So I think that they deserve to be in the next tier. But Truly there's going to be, right, there's going to be six, there's going to be six teams. It's Charlotte, Chicago, New York, Indiana, Toronto, and Washington. Those are six teams for four spots. I, I would put my money on Chicago being one of those four teams, but this, I, the ceiling is the seven seed for me. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. that, that pick is at worst going to be 16. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's, that's the worst case scenario. And I see perfect arguments for it being the ninth pick, the 10th pick. Right now, it's the eighth pick, and they've lost four straight. I understand that there were some tough games against some more reputable opponents, but the Zach Levine, Vucevic pick and roll that they've been going to a lot, clearly trying to fatten up Vucevic, make him a little bit happy in his new destination. Uh, offensively, it's been okay. Uh, not as efficient as you would expect it to be with two all-stars. But defensively, as you've spoken on, it's been abysmal. It, it's, been, it's been disgusting. I mean, the Pelicans game, it wasn't Zion. It was like Steven Adams was owning him in the post as like a post threat. And it was like he was hitting baby hooks and just bodying him and moving him wherever he wanted to. And then in the pick and roll, Eric Bledsoe was dicing him up. Like it, it was, it's, I don't, I don't like the move for Chicago. I think giving up a player that by next season could be in a similar tier talent-wise with Wendell Carter to Nikola Vucevic, I, I think it was a reckless decision. I like Wendell Carter. I think he was in a bad spot for him. And you spoke on it, Biddies, in terms of sharing minutes with both Larry Markkinen, sharing minutes with uh, Thaddeus Young or, or, or what have you. It wasn't the right spot for him. They couldn't figure him out. They weren't employing him the right way. I think, I mean, he's, what is he averaging? 16 and 10, a couple blocks. He's been efficient in the, in the handful of games he's played for Orlando so far. I like him there. I think he has all-star upside. I wouldn't put him in that discussion, like, concrete-wise, but I think he could absolutely get there. And I think the core of having a lot of young guys that are all plus defenders, there's some athletes, when I, when I look at the core of Fultz, uh, Chuma, I, I like Chuma, Isaac, Wendell Carter, R.J. Hampton, Gary Harris, I, I don't like Cole Anthony. But if, if, they can, if they can target their next draft picks 
their, their next available free agent signings to some shooting and just to some scoring, I see a nice mix there. And, and for me, I, I would be looking at Jalen Green uh, just in terms of the, who you're, who you're going to be scouting in terms of who the Magic should target specifically with their own pick. Right now, I think the Magic have the fourth worst record. Mm-hmm. I think as long as they're in the top five, I think they could move their way around as needed to get Jalen Green. And I think he would be a perfect fit there. So as far as thinking about the Magic, I, I love it. I, I think next year they could be better than the Chicago Bulls. I, I don't think, I don't know. I think there's a lot of hoopla about being an all-star and about, oh, you averaged 23 and 10 on one of the worst offensive teams in the league. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't see it with Vucevic. Uh, I, I just, I think it was smart to get out from there. Obviously the Gordon experiment had, had, had run its course. Evan Fournier wasn't going to come back anyway, getting anything from them, even if it was a good deal for the Celtics made sense. So I, I loved it for Orlando. I would probably give them a, a minus for the deadline. And then on the flip side, I'm giving Chicago, if they didn't trade for Tice, which was awesome, I'm giving them a, a D. So I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that you're not more in uh, after watching a team that is clearly struggling to be anything above the seven seed in the playoffs. I think kicking the can down the road, committing to getting a player like a Jalen Green or whoever you can get at the top of the draft while stockpiling some draft assets, I think that's the right move. Try and contend in two years when you're clearly not going to contend in the next handful. So, like I said, I don't disagree that's the right move. And they didn't kick the can on the road. They said, we got to do this. We got to get better. Because who, who wants to be gentlemen swept by the Bucks every year? Nobody. Right. But I, I want to call back to something Biddy said, I think maybe two podcasts ago, about the, the state of Chicago, like the Bulls and the fandom in Chicago. Like you said, everyone's wearing Cubs, White Sox, Bears. No one cared about the Bulls. I think this move by the Chicago Bulls isn't because they think they're going to be some championship team now but they want people to care about them again. Isn't that, bad? Isn't that bad? No, it's well, bad. here's the thing. I'm, I'm an Orlando Magic fan, right? And my past 10 years have been held. And these past two years for the Magic, like I had something to look forward to. Like even though I was going to be a seven seed, it felt good to have some hope coming into the season. And I think that's what the Bulls are trying to do. Like they have this small window where maybe fans can get excited and start going back to games and – loving the Bulls again, and they're just trying it for something. Because if they don't make this move now, guess what? Next five years are just going to be the just missing the playoffs. And guess what the Bulls are probably going to do in another three years? They're probably going to do the same thing Orlando's doing right now. So they're just – they want a little love, do a little something. I understand what the Bulls are doing. I understand what the Magic are doing. Do I think the Bulls are operating with their minds? No, they're operating with their hearts. And, you know, that's not always a bad thing, I guess. <laughs> The Bulls definitely do not operate with their minds. And it's just, <laughs> it's just funny to be a few years down the line where they were in a spot where they didn't want to pay Jimmy Butler. And now they're paying Zach Levine and, uh, and Vooch. And just, you know, like you said, you brought up their popularity. Uh, and I'm still expecting Derrick Rose to be the most popular jersey and Michael Jordan to be the second most popular jersey. And then maybe we can talk about Zach Levine. Uh, from a popularity standpoint, I guess the diehard Bulls fans can be a little bit happier, but I still think they're going to be a little lost in the, in the city. Yeah, before we close it out and to jump to some of the other deals that brought it some excitement to our eyes from the deadline, uh, right now, like I said, they're 19 and 28, Chicago Bulls. They're the 10 seed right now. They've currently on a six-game losing streak. They have one of the 10 hardest schedules remaining in the, in the league, including three games against the Brooklyn Nets, multiple games against both the Bucks and the Sixers. And they, they, I just don't 
I don't see it. I, I, I think it's uh, good moves with getting Tice. I like Troy Brown for them. I think that's actually interesting. But there's still a lot of Denzel Valentine. There's still a lot of Laurie Markin and not understanding what he is. I, I, I don't think that Billy Donovan, obviously he's a huge improvement from Boylan from the previous year because Boylan was the obvious worst coach in the league. And, and Donovan ab- absolutely has some cachet in a way that he's experimental. He understands to a degree how some players are supposed to work together. But in the four games since they've had Vucevic, they haven't had the same starting lineup since. I understand one game was because Zach Levine was hurt, but you can tell it's because he's trying to figure th- things out and, and no lineup is working. Thaddeus Young with Vooch doesn't work. Laurie Markkinen with Vooch definitely doesn't work. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up being the eight seed maybe because they feast on some teams that don't have as much, uh, I don't even like saying top end talent. What, Zach Levine and, and Vucevic, are they, they're both top 40 guys. They're not top 30 guys. So I'm, I mean, I don't think I would pick them to lose in the play-in tournament. That's what I'm picking them for. And for to give up a young big who I understand doesn't fit on your roster, but two first round picks to lose in a play-in tournament and then likely be cap struck with these two guys moving forward. I mean, Chicago media are, are freakazoids. They're talking about freaking trading for Bradley Beal next year. Like, what, what are they doing? That, that's, not, yeah. that's not an option. Now that we have and two stars, don't you think someone else would like to join our two stars? Like, I, it's, it's just a clown show for me. I, I, don't, it, I don't see it. It's, it's crazy because they actually did just do something right in drafting Patrick Williams. So oh, I love Patrick Williams. That's a bright yeah. spot. <laughs> but now they're screwing him up. Oh, this, this deal for Vucevic and, and what the other deals that they made at the deadline was definitely a vote of confidence for him. He's, he's guarding guards. He's guarding bigs. We're seeing him block. Who did he block at the rim last night or two nights ago? But let's jump to some other teams. There was a lot of action. Uh, I think the, the biggest headlining deal besides the relationship between Orlando and Chicago was the Denver Nuggets, who also stole yeah. some money away from Orlando, grabbing Aaron Gordon. Uh, they're 4-0 since the deadline. Aaron Gordon's only played in three of those games, but it's, it's a perfect Cinderella slipper fit in terms of just the, the roles that they play and need to have on both sides of the ball. If you look at the raw stats, they're going to say he's not really doing much. He's only averaging like 12 points a game, but, but, he's, but, he's, but he just fits. He just makes sense. He's guarding the guys he's supposed to. Offensively, he's rolling. He's hitting corner threes off the catch. His role is minimized to maximize his strengths in a manner that he was – asked to do things he couldn't do in Orlando. Yeah. So I love yeah. it for Aaron Gordon. I, I don't know. I, I know that you have a lot of frustrations as a Magic fan with, with Aaron Gordon in terms of his expectations with the potential that he had coming in and his inability to meet those expectations. But do you think that this could unlock something for him that he didn't have the capacity to reach in, in Orlando with the Denver Nuggets? I just think Orlando wanted too much out of him. Like they asked him to do things that weren't in his skill set. You know, he's not a, a natural scorer. I mean, yes, he can score at the rim as far as throwing him logs, and he's actually a very good low-post scorer against a smaller defender. He can, he can back them down. But the way Denver wants to use him, I mean, they primarily want to use him as a, an, all, an on-ball defender against some of these bigger uh, small forwards and power forwards. I mean, he's versatile in the defensive end, which is where he should be um, – his skill set should be utilized defensively, do a little bit on the offense, grab some rebounds, and he's, he's, he can stretch the floor as well. He's not, he's not a knockdown shooter. But he, you have to respect his shot. So if he's your fourth scoring option, maybe third or fourth, you know, you have Jokic and uh, Jamal Murray ahead of him. 
And it's the perfect fit. Like you said, maximize his ability by minimizing what he has to do. I love it for, I love it for the Nuggets and then for the Magic. Uh, I have not seen Gary Harris play yet. I watched a little, you're laughing, so he's probably not that good. No, I like Gary Harris. I, I actually liked what I saw out of RJ Hampton. I kind of liked him coming uh, into the draft. He's a very big point guard. I think he's 6'4 um, at the point guard position. He seems like he's a good defender. His offensive ability is a little sketchy right now. I mean, he can, he can finish at the rim a little bit, but I, I like it. I like it for everyone. I think it was a good, a good trade, and I think the price for uh, the Nuggets is perfect. One first-round pick, a couple prospects. Everyone's happy. It's a win-win. I think it's a perfect fit in Denver. I think Orlando got a good return. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're Denver, their top two guys are both offense-first players who need the ball in their hands. I think it's great to bring in a versatile Aaron Gordon who doesn't need the ball to be in his hands and is a more defensive-focused player. So I think in terms of what we could see from them, I think this increases their chances of making a finals run, which will still be so difficult to go through the West. But this move just makes a ton of sense and – as long as they keep Aaron Gordon long-term, it's going to make sense both short-term and long-term. I'm more confident in them than the Jazz, than the Suns. Uh, I think that they have a, a proven postseason success with the two-man game between, I don't know, is he the MVP frontrunner right now because of injuries missed with Nikola Jokic? And uh, we've seen that uh, Jamal Murray can put up ridiculous stats in the postseason. And I think one of the biggest things that's an underlying factor <clears throat> that's going to benefit the, the Denver Nuggets is, is what Aaron Gordon will do to alleviate pressure off of Michael Porter Jr. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. was asked to do too much defensively, and we were seeing spurts of him being actually uh, an exciting defender, a guy, a guy who could switch a little bit, who, who could defend his own position, and he has, he has good length and, and good athleticism. He still has a lot to learn, but, but now he's, he's not being asked to, do, to step too much out of his, his, his own role and his capabilities. He's, he's being able to be a backside defender, a, a weak side rim protector at times. And I like that for him with entering a game against like the Clippers. We saw Aaron Gordon defend Kawhi Leonard fantastically. And, and now Michael Porter Jr. can take time off guarding Terrence Mann off the ball if, if he needs to, rather than having to be a guy that's putting up possession after possession against both Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And then when he comes up to pull up his silky smooth pull up three and transition, it's short because he doesn't have the legs after guarding those guys. And I think that's shined through Porter jr. Has been awesome in the past. Never mind since the trade deadline past like 20 games, he's been great. So those four, the, the core four that they have over there, I think that's something to be excited about. Uh, yep. I don't have any specific one trade that I, I would like to talk about. So I'll just rattle off like seven other deals that happened and you can each pick one that you want to talk about. Uh, leading up to the deadline, we had Hammy Diallo get traded for Svi Makailuk. Hammy's averaged 19 points a guard. I think 19 or something like that. He's been great. Miami Heat got Bilitza and Victor Oladipo for dirt cheap. The Mavericks got Redick and he hated it. Uh, Lou Will and Rondo swapped places and somehow Lou Will needed to be incentivized to move, even though Rondo is worse than him. The Kings, which I actually surprisingly grayed out well, they got both DeLon Wright and Terrence Davis for nothing. I think they traded Corey Joseph. The yeah. 76ers got George Hill. The Blazers and the Raptors did the Powell-Trent swap. 
Um, anything stand off the page quickly before we talk about our uh, Boston Celtics biddies? I like the Powell Trent trade for um, for Portland. It seems like that's that Powell is a guy that they're more comfortable in investing in long term. I think that he works really well with uh, McCollum and Lillard. Yeah, I like what the Heat did. I mean, I think at this point Oladipo's very suspect. He's not the defender he used to be, but you got you got him for dirt cheap. And Bielitsa is actually a very good. I mean, all right, the Heat last year they were in the finals because the three point shooting was off this planet. Bielitsa, he's a fantastic, and I'm probably butchering his name every time, but he's a fantastic three point shooter. So I think that really helps him out. And one trade you did not mention that I actually think is sneaky good is PJ Tucker going to the Bucks. Oh yeah. I think he's going to really help them when it comes to playoff time, stretch the floor with Giannis driving in the paint. So I think that's another sneaky trade. Watch out for uh, T.J. Tucker on the Bucks. For sure, for sure. And then a domino that was reactionary from that P.J. Tucker deal. The Suns got Torrey Craig for free. I understand he's not like a headlining player, but he, he had some defensive versatility that the Suns didn't have. So I like that for the Suns. As far as Oladipo, he's actually been more motivated on defense. I think he's only played two games. Um, and I think – Let's say I wrote it down. Well, one thing about Oladipo, when you look that up, is he, for the longest time, actually wanted to go to Miami. So oh, yeah, he loves it. He's probably very happy that he's there, and he's probably going to sign if they want him for uh, for a couple more years after that, if they can get him back in form. Yeah, Oladipo's – go ahead. Now I want to say the two dirty words. So I'm just saying the Miami philosophy yeah. is to get players uh, in Culture? tip-top – condition and like if you look at like Kelly Olenek of how he looks on the Celtics and then what he looked like in Miami I think that getting into their program ahead of his free agency is a worthwhile endeavor for Miami especially where they gave up nothing um, to, to kind of get that process started and then when it comes time to give him the contract have a have a test drive under their belt. Oladipo is shooting splits are 24% from the field, 10% from three, and 43% from the free throw line in two games. Wins over Golden State and Cleveland. <laughs> Can only go up. Let's move to the most important trade of the deadline. The Celtics yes. acquired Evan Fournier from the Orlando Magic fire sale in which they gave away Jeff Teague, good riddance, who got waived immediately, and a couple second round picks. Is the earliest one in 2025? I think so. So... The Celtics, with their new roster, uh, were still eighth in the Eastern Conference. They're 24 and 25. They're three and two since the trade deadline. Uh, it's a couple tough games. This we're in the middle of a seven-game homestand. We play the Charlotte Hornets without Gordon Hayward or Lamelo Ball tonight. Robert Williams has been the shining star of our season. He's shooting 70% from the field, 75% from the line. He's averaging a double-double, over five assists a game, three blocks a game, over a, over a steal a game. He's a plus 10 since being a starter. So he's been incredible. I, I think that this season has obviously been tumultuous, to, to say the least. There's a lot of hand-wringing about issues that may not be as prevalent as the discourse would make you believe. And as of late, and I would go back to the game right before the trade deadline. So since that first Bucks loss, loss where we came back, made it a close game, Daniel Tice missed the buzzer, our buzzer-beating potential three and then got traded away a day later. I, I see a, a more motivated team. I see a more consistently intense team. Yes, there's still pitfalls to that. 
but I think that we are starting to develop an identity. And I think that that's something that we struggled to establish for the large portion of the season. We were relying too much on the performance of our two stars and just hoping that some role players would produce. I think our identity is going to be to play fast, to shoot a lot of threes, and to switch everything, specifically ratcheting up our perimeter defensive intensity. And when you talk about the players, or when the players talk about it, rather, and, and they speak on their mentality, what, what Brad Stevens is emphasizing in the locker room, and, and what they're hoping to employ at, at offensively and defensively, it aligns with that. And, and I think that, yes, that, that, that might lead to some unfortunate losses because you're going to live and die by the three uh, more than normal. But this smaller lineup where you're never going to play two bigs again, we'll see how many minutes Tristan Thompson gets when he comes back. But leaning specifically on Bo, on Robert Williams to be our big, and then siphoning down our rotation to only depending on who can contribute off the bench. I'm, I'm excited about the team moving forward. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of issues and I'm down to talk issues, but what have you seen since the deadline that maybe has piqued your interest in a way that you weren't seeing something before? I think that's just Rob's time. And as much as we, didn't get a very impressive return for Daniel Tice. I think it's a bit of an addition by subtraction because we just needed to unlock this time for Robert Williams. And I think that Brad was clearly more comfortable playing Daniel Tice and also more comfortable for some reason playing Tristan Thompson in a lot of games. So to clear out some of that time for Rob Williams, I think is a win for the long-term development of Rob Williams and for the team. But, you know, Evan Fournier, he can play, but he's, he's not a fortune changer. And just looking at, looking at how we played, I'm going to take it back, not the, the trade deadline, but to since the all-star break where, we had a little bit of momentum going into the All-Star break. Since then, we beat the Rockets, no offense, the Magic, uh, Milwaukee, and Oklahoma City, and then the Rockets again. So, well, we have one really strong team. Juggernaut we, lineup. <laughs> we've been one really strong team since the break, and we've lost, um, I mean, Brooklyn and Utah – Yes, they are very good teams, but guess what you need to do in the playoffs? Beat very good teams. Uh, we lost to Cleveland, which is a joke. We lost to Sacramento, who, who had a little hot streak there. But still, uh, you can only excuse so many losses, especially when we're going into month four of the Celtics, really just running on a treadmill here. Uh, lost to Memphis in overtime. You mentioned that uh, Bucks loss. Lost to the Pelicans lost to the Mavericks. Um, it, it's just, it's tough to get hopeful about a team that has really just gone up and down, up and down, up and down every week. And I, I can't really, can't really endorse the team. And when you have to place blame, I have to go with the guys at the top of the roster because Brad Stevens why in the world was Brad Stevens a better coach with Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder 
than with Kemba and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. It, it just doesn't really add up. And I know that's a crazy season, but we're in eighth place. And I know it's a game or a game and a half out from fourth, but it's just really – they haven't given me any reason to, to believe in what's to come. Yeah, and when you say that he was a better coach with that uh, IT team, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like, the team just gelled so much better. And I think the, the answer to that is just balance. I think if you look at the Celtics roster now, there's no balance. And, it, and Seamus, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I see a lot of overlap in skill at the top. Like, you see Kemba and Tatum, two guys who need the ball in their hand to be at their best. Uh, Jalen Brown's a little bit of a – you know, jack of all trades, you do a little bit of everything, but your top guys is a lot of overlap. You want the ball in their hands. If you look at the IT teams, we knew who got the ball, man. It was Isaiah Thomas and everyone worked around that. And they, everyone had different strengths and everyone was in the system and their, their strengths were played at, uh, were all played to. And I think the issue now is that there's a lot of overlap. And then also with this team, I'm just looking at the, the, the game log from the Houston game and the guys getting minutes off the bench are Grant Williams, uh, Luke Cornett and Peyton Pritchard and I know that they did some some stuff to improve their roster I, where's uh my boy Fournier we got 30 minutes as well so he got a lot of time but I mean that bench man it's not helping you a lot when when your starters come out you're not going to get a lot of production off that bench so I think the combination of two things right there's a lot of skill skill overlap right there's not a lot of guys complementing each other in the starting unit and then when you mix and match from the bench, you're not going to get a lot of production. I mean, there's lineups out there. I, I remember what I saw the other day. It was like uh, Grant Williams, Daniel Tice, and uh, Peyton Pritchard on the floor at the same time. And good God, man, that looked like a, a YMCA team out there. They just had no gelling, right? And at this point in the season, I hate to be the, the Debbie Downer, but I mean, we're 50 games in. And I know you're hoping like, oh, it looks better today. It's going to get better. I think this is what it is right now. And I think – the thing that Celtics fans don't want to hear is you're going to have to trade away one of these premier stars and, and get some more cohesive pieces at some point. I mean, you keep just throwing the same guys out there every year and saying, oh, it's going to work next year. It's going to work next year. And we're seeing the same outcome. So what I almost want to, this season is really weird and wacky and what I'm gleaning from it and able to take out of it, I, need, I, I want to be extremely careful in terms of what gets paid attention to, what gets swept under the rug, what gets highlighted, and so on and so forth. So with the Celtics, they're the, they're the number one team in the league in terms of games lost to COVID protocol, and number one team in the league to games missed to COVID protocol plus injuries. That includes Tatum for a large period of time. I, I think he said recently, maybe it was the interview after the Rockets game, Someone asked him about how his stamina is, and he says he's starting to feel a little bit better. So two weeks after he missed time to COVID, he's starting to finally feel okay. Kemba missed the first two months of the season. Smart missed time with an injury. Jalen misses a game here and there. We haven't had a full roster for one game yet. So those are my excuses. And then as far as the roster construction for the first part of the season, those are conducive to bad habits. So Brad, because of what he had at his disposal, was more inclined to play rotations that included two bigs. 
And when you're playing rotations that include two bigs, you're more likely to play slow. When you're playing slow, you're going to be getting up and down less. You're going to be needing to create in the half court more often. Because this team doesn't have a lot of playmakers and a lot of high-level passers, you're going to need to rely on your shot creators to create shots. And when it's a young shot creator who's learned under the tutelage of uh, Kobe Bryant and, and Kyrie Irving, uh, they're going to think that there's, there's bad shots that, that are good shots. And yes, Jason Tatum can hit any shot in the book. And that's part of the issue with him is because he can get anything off against any defender, no matter where he is on the court. So I think what's exciting moving forward, I'm throwing in the garbage the sample of the season that included two big rotations, that included offense that was stagnant and wasn't fast-paced and, and was very far-reaching from what Brad wants to implement as closer, not 100%, but closer to an equal opportunity offense that moves a lot, that has a lot of passing. You don't need to have good passers. You just need to move the ball. So when I'm thinking moving forward, and I talked about this new identity, and I'm thinking about the infusion of Evan Fournier as a guy who, no, he's not a difference maker, but yes, he can make six three-pointers in an NBA game. He can be a guy that off the first pass, dribbling the ball at the core, he's going to pass it again real quick, or he's going to attack a closeout and kick it out. He's going to move the ball. He's going to fit into that identity, that new identity that I'm seeing that we have, all while alleviating pressure as a shot maker from Smart, alleviating pressure from Jalen, and alleviating pressure at times, but lesser so, with Tatum. And dominoing from that, those guys can then put in more attention defensively, specifically on the perimeter, where they can go back to being the team that they've been since Brad Steven was a coach. Every single year that Brad Steven has coached the Boston Celtics, they have been a top three team in perimeter defense in terms of three-point shooting, in terms of drives per game, and all of the statistics that you can garner in terms of being able to shut down the perimeter. This year, they're not that. And I think a lot of it is because they're not playing fast. The offensive load for our perimeter defenders on the roster is overstretched, so they can't put out as much effort defensively. So when I'm thinking moving forward, I think a lot of these problems are going to shake themselves out. I think Rob is a beacon of light that is glorious, and I'm so excited to see him develop the way that I was hoping and praying that extended health would allow him to earlier in his career. But you touched on it being the top of the roster, and I think that more and more I'm realizing that the mentality of Tatum, the mentality of the best player in the team, permeates to the rest of the roster. And yes, we, we see moments where he can lead and he can head a fantastic fourth quarter comeback with aggressive defense, and he moves the ball, and he attacks the rim, and the only shots that he takes that are kind of weird are from the perimeter. But too far in between are those performances mixed with putrid shot performance throughout the middle of the game where the meat and potatoes, where you need to be able to separate yourself from a team that's worse like the Cleveland or like a Memphis, or you need to be able to get yourself back in a game against a team that's a more reputable playoff opponent. With Tatum, he's 70th percentile in the league in points per possessions on spot ups, attacking in transition, attacking to the rim in pick and roll as a ball handler roles that can be maximized in a faster paced offense. And he's under 50 and he's in the bottom percentile, like 40th percentile in isolation. And he's in bottom percentile in post-ups, high post. So we need to see less of those sample sizes. Jared Weiss, and he's one of the beat writers for the Boston Celtics. He wrote about this in depth in terms of Tatum's role and how the Celtics have success when his specific 
offensive archetype is is kind of funneling in the right way rather than it being more stagnant and blocked and he's leaning on his 18 foot jumpers and he's not passing the ball for 17 seconds of the possession so i think a lot of this team's ability to, to turn around the the drudgery that is the narrative of this team being awful in a roller coaster which to a degree is, is true so far this season is going to depend on tatum's ability to maximize those moments where he's playing the right way and to eliminate those moments that he's playing the wrong way. And when I'm thinking about the Evan Fournier trade, when I'm thinking about getting rid of Tice, even though I love Tice and I'm going to miss Tyson, he's been actually really good for, for Chicago so far. And we're getting rid of Jeff Teague. And hopefully we're going to get some, just some more health coming through. Romeo Langford, I don't expect much, but I think he can play 10 minutes a game and be a good defender off the bench. That's just another additive that can alleviate some defensive pressure. So if Tatum, with these newfound factors that we have moving past the trade deadline, and hopefully with an understanding that has been consistent throughout the whole year of what Brad wants to do with this team, which is the right theory, I think he can head a more efficient, a more successful, and a more consistent Celtics team that, yes, I understand we haven't seen so far. So I think you're 100% spot on where the performance and the mindset of the guy at the top is going to be reflected in the team's performance at a whole. I, I put a lot of blame on injuries and on a COVID protocol because the Celtics have suffered in that area more than any other team in the league. And I put some at the feet of Danny Ainge and the build that he had in the beginning of the season. I've talked previously about yeah. how I blame Gordon Hayward for some of that, but we're not going to talk about that. And then finally, I'm, I'm realizing, like I just said, that, that Tatum, he needs to take this bull by the horns, and I think he can turn it around, and I'm hoping he can um, I, I don't know if you're seeing a lot of these similar things, Steve, but I, I'm optimistic because I, I see things that I see no reason why they can't continue and why they can't change and why they can't eradicate issues. So I've, I've watched probably less Celtics games than both of you. So I want to give my, my thoughts and see if Biddy's agrees or disagrees with me because he would be a good uh, judgment on this. When Tatum's at his worst, I don't, I don't blame Tatum necessarily. And this is why, hear me out. I'm looking at Tatum, and he's on the floor with these bums around. No offense to the Celtics bench, but he has, like, Grant Williams on the floor with them, Peyton Pritchard, maybe uh, Time Lord. He's not a bum, but Time Lord's not going to create his own shot. And Tatum's looking around. He's like, well, I guess it's my time. Like, what am I else am I going to do? And he, he gets, in the, gets in the post and takes terrible shots. And I think it goes back to the bench. When the guy seems looks around and has no one to help him out, he goes YOLO mode. He's like, I'm just going to get my shot and do the Kobe thing. And that's where I think his biggest inefficiencies are is when it's a half-court offense and he's with the bench unit and he's just like, I got to make something happen. And he's taking terrible shots. In the Celtics, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll be the positive side here. They look amazing in spurts. They look like a finals team at times. But then what happens is there's like little five-minute chunks in the game where their offense goes to shit. They become completely stagnant. And the other team puts up 10 points and it's a 10-0 run and you're in the hole again. So I think if they could play more um, – less half court and just more fast pace and get up and down the court and play, play a full court game. And then maybe edit the bench a little bit where um, your rotations don't have Tatum or Brown with a bunch of bums. And there's, there's some help on the floor. And I think having Kemba back, you know, he missed the first two months will help alleviate some of that pressure. So I think there is some hope, but I don't know. What do you think that he's. I think Danny Ainge, I think it was last week, really, summed up the Celtics season in that we play most games, we play 30 really good minutes, but we're not playing complete games. And so often it feels like either we're going 
way up in the first half and then blow in the lead, or uh, we go down and then say, oh, okay, now we need to turn it on. Um, you talked about, Steve, you talked about when Tatum looks at his worst. I think when Tatum and I think when the offense looks at its worst is when the offense just comes down to, I'm going to try, I, Jason Tatum, I'm going to try to isolate for 15 seconds, not working. Okay, Kemba, here you go. You try to do the same thing. Or Jalen and Tatum, sometimes Marcus Smart, sometimes Peyton Pritchard, just too much alternating ISO. And I think, Mm -hmm. and I think you can't ignore what James brought up where we've been so impacted by COVID and by injuries and the schedule is uh, truncated, so there's not enough time for practice. So it's tough to have great off-ball movement, great cutting, and great passing when you just don't have enough reps with your teammates to understand what's going to come next. But all that being said, Utah's playing in a truncated schedule, and they're being they're playing – some great offensive basketball. So you can only excuse so much of it where you really have to be like, well, I don't think that the guys are working hard enough on the offensive end. One quick thing about Utah, and I just want to sideswipe them because I don't like the Jazz, but they are the the best team record-wise, I believe. Yes, yes. And I think it's because they have been so dang lucky. Their injuries are a complete minimum. Their missed games because of COVID, tiny. They have benefited, benefited greatly from health. Right, And if you look at the other teams in the West, the Clippers, the Lakers, they have just been ravaged. The Celtics have missed plenty of players from health and COVID protocol. So I know we want to all praise the Jazz of being this model franchise, but, man, they have been so dang lucky. Yeah, they're, they're a good playoff team. I think that they're not the number one overall seed talent-wise or performance-wise. I think you should think of what they kind of were last year, and they can be a feisty team that could upset anyone in the Western Conference if they get hot that are going to have issues in terms of their ability to switch when it comes to emphasizing Rudy Gobert, but they're more of a four or five seed in my opinion than a one seed. And I've thought that from the beginning, Mike Conley yeah. is the only player that's missed, I think more than like three games for them. Uh, you're a thousand percent right. But I just wanted, before we move on, just one quick thing and just to wrap up the Celtics talk is I love the, the optimism from you guys. And I think the Celtics are better than what they've shown us, but here's the problem is Yes, they can upset one of those top three seeds in the playoffs, but where they seed in this playoffs, they're going to have to do that three times to make it to the finals. And that's going to be a hard battle, man. So you're going to have to beat one of the top three seeds once, next round probably twice, unless there's an upset, and then a third time. Well, if we, if we get to the four, yeah, the so four or five would keep us safe. And it's, I think it's a game, maybe two. And we got Charlotte tonight. And we, we just play so many of the teams. So it is within our control. So if we, it looks like we match up great against the Bucks. But if we are to make our move and go into the playoffs feeling like, okay, we can actually win games, to get to the four or five, I think that would mean we beat a lot of the teams in our way. Um, and yeah, I, I think the Celtics can beat anybody. But I don't think they can run the table. Yeah. And I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's important that they get to the four or five seed or to the six just to avoid the play in tournament. I think if it's possible, uh, I would want 
to play Philly in the second round and Miami in the first round. If, if you can make that happen, obviously you can't choose your own destiny. It's not like that, but that that's something that I wouldn't be. I mean, I'm not, I'm not confident in the Celtics in terms of their postseason expectations, but I feel like I'm way more optimistic than headlines and top talk shows would make you think that you should be. I, I mean, the Celtics players talk about it a lot and the, the negativity that's swirling it, it like gets to them, you know, Jalen talks about it and he says like, I don't know when, when they're struggling, even in like the game, like the Dallas game, I thought that was largely a good game. Um, start to finish. No, they, they weren't, it wasn't like you say, it wasn't a 48 minute consistent performance, but I think it was more like a 39 minute performance rather than some of the other games that are only like a 20 or a 30 or whatever. And there was a lot of things that I really liked and you could just tell that, it was those similar issues that are prevalent when we struggle in general of like dipping your head, losing confidence uh, with guys at the top, with, with people like Tatum, not trusting your teammates after moments that are unthinkable, like Luca hitting two 35 foot step back jumpers with the shot clock explode. Like, you know what I mean? So it's, it's tough that after that game, when, when, the wolves come out and ask questions. Why does this, why can't this team figure it out? What, why, why are there so many problems? Is there something wrong in the locker room? Are, are, are there issues that we don't know about? And Jalen's like, I don't, I don't know what you want, want me to say. The negativity doesn't help. And I understand that you want your teams and, you, and your players and your athletes to be able to overcome the discussion and the nonsense that happens outside of their bubble, if you will. But, but it's hard when they're, they're pressed with it 24 seven and then they aren't allowed the capacity to develop chemistry and, and connective tissue in, in a way that in previous seasons you are. We've heard recently that the Celtics locker room is literally split in two. There's, there's a Celtics locker room that exists for COVID protocols that they had to expand and the younger players exist in a separate, separate second locker room. So they have two locker rooms. And it's just like we've heard about personal issues happening in the locker room. I don't know. It sounds more and more, the more that you hear that it might be something that Marcus Smart's dealing with personally and just stuff like that. And we don't know because the beat writers aren't there and because there's so much weirdness. But at the end of the day, once we get health, if we emphasize and stick to this new identity that I do truly think that I'm seeing and Tatum can show a consistent mentality to make the appropriate decisions he, he bleeds through to the rest of the roster in a way that the other players don't purely because of his status and his, and his reputation of the player that he is. He's a top 15, top 12 guy in the league. And so when he takes a bad shot and he bows his head, the next time, next time Kemba is going to feel the capacity to be able to take a bad shot. And then if he misses, he's going to hang his head too. And so then if your top two of your top handful of players are doing that, that, that bleeds through to the other guys and you're going to struggle to feel confident and you're going to struggle to trust your teammates. And, and that's something that you need to start at the front and you need to nip that at the bud and you need to be able to trust your guys, even if they are Grant Williams and Prate Pritchard and they're not all-star caliber players, they're not top hundred players in the NBA. It's important that you trust your teammates, even if they aren't worth a damn, because that will encourage confidence in a manner that your team will be able to succeed above its expectations, above its talent level. 
something that we see year after year after year with Brad Stevens teams, because normally we do have that trust. We do have that connective tissue. And I think that if we can just fix those, tweak those few things, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think that the Celtics could be an Eastern Conference finals team. If everything goes right, they could be a finals team, but I, they could lose in the first round. Who knows? They have a pretty big ceiling. I'm excited to watch it. close out our discussion here today with some trivia. What we're going to do is I have four questions for the panel. I'm going to ask them one at a time and you'll go back and forth submitting an answer. Each question has multiple answers. So let's start it off. We're going to give Steve the first opportunity to answer the first question. I'll, Excellent. I'll, play, in, I'll play in some Jeopardy music in, in post-production. Question number one. Since Dwight's departure, the Orlando Magic have drafted in the lottery Six times. Name as many of these picks as you can. One player at a time. Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon, fourth overall pick in 2014. Biddies. Mario Hazonia. Oh, wow, he was so bad. Didn't want to save that one to later. Okay, 2015, fifth pick overall. Back to Steve. Dun, 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 dun. Trying to think of the current roster and who would be up there. Let's see. Foltz is not drafted by us. Gordon. Oh, Mo Bamba. Why am I missing Mo Bamba? Of course. Mo Bamba, 2018, sixth pick in the draft. Biddies. Victor Oladipo. Victor Oladipo, 2013, second overall pick. Steve, back to you. You were struggling to think of Mo Bamba. I I know, yeah. Magic fan. I'm not thinking that far back. Um. Give me the buzzer. Give me the buzzer. I'm out, man. X to seal the question. Biddies. Oh, uh, and this is since 2011? Uh, 2012. There's two players left. Can you give me a position after uh, if Biddy doesn't get it? If Biddy doesn't get it, I'll give positions. Evan Fournier? Evan Fournier no, was not he a lottery pick. And he was picked by the Denver Nuggets. Steve, we have a point guard and we have a forward. A point guard. Oh God, I can't believe I missed my boy that's injured. Um, and I keep getting his dang name from Florida State. <laughs> Coming to steal. Coming to steal. Uh five. Four. Three. Two. Steal it. One. Oh, Jonathan my Isaac. Oh Jonathan my God, Isaac. Steve. Yeah. Embarrassing. Embarrassing. All right, Biddy's wins question one. Final player, 2014, 10th overall pick. They traded DeMontis Sabonis for him. Alfred Payton. Oh, God. Alfred, that trade yeah. haunts me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Biddies, you're starting yeah. off. Question number two. Robert Williams put up 20 points with no misses, eight assists on Friday, a feat accomplished by only three other bigs in NBA history. Can you name the three other bigs? <laughs> no. <laughs> 20 points, no misses, eight assists. Uh, Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain. Good job, Biddy. That would be my guess. Yeah, I was going to go Will. Steve, two more. 
I'm just going to throw this name out because uh, it's whatever. Give it a go with the assist. I'm thinking guy who can get a lot of assists, Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic, good guess. That's one of them. Biddies, can you get the third name? Bill Walton. Bill Walton, no. Modern player, modern player. How, how modern? Active? Current, active, yes. But Steve's back. Steve's yes, Steve's up. Uh, this guy doesn't strike me as an assist player, but I'm going with the best, one of the best bigs in the league. I'm going to go with Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid, wrong, no. More, he's definitely an assist player. His calling card is more defense, though. Oh, really? I think I might know who that is. Well, I don't know. Uh, Rudy Gobert. Five, no. Not Gobert, no. X. I knew, yeah. I knew you wouldn't get questioned with Gobert at the answer. Eight assists. <laughs> 20 points, no misses. X going to give it to you. I have no idea, man. I have okay. no idea. Give me the X. He's, he's, a, he's a four. He's an NBA champion. Oh, Draymond Green. Draymond oh, Green. Oh, God, Biddy's that was so easy. It. Oh, so easy. Didn't get it, though. Biddy's the early lead over our guest, Steve, here. All right, Steve. Yeah, this game's going to show me that show us that I'm the fraud here, so it's all good. I was hoping <laughs> that you were going to be able to separate yourself with the Orlando Magic question. Um, this, this, these next two could be a little bit trickier for you. Gonzaga is currently oh, gunning great. for the unprecedented, undefeated season tomorrow night, which was infamously cut short for the 2014-2015 Kentucky Wildcats mm-hmm. by the supple hands of Wisconsin's Frank Kaminsky. This Kentucky team, 2014-2015, had nine future NBA players. How many can you name? Steve, 2014 I know one of them, at least. Okay, go ahead. My boy, Big Cat, Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns. Eight more. Biddies. Let's go with Devin Booker. Devin Booker, correct. To Steve. Hmm. Now it gets trickier. I don't know if this is a valid answer, but there was a guy that the Celtics drafted, a shooting guard, I believe, that was on that team. He was not a very good player. James Young was not on that roster. X. Ah, that's who I was thinking of. Thank you. Goes to Biddies. We have... Uh, one, two, there's two active players. The rest, uh, maybe three, but definitely two active players. And two active... on that team? Who? Tyler Ennis? Tyler Ennis was not on the team. You're very close to a different player that is no longer active, though. Back to Steve. We have two bigs that are active. <sighs> one, one plays for, I think he's on the Mavericks, and the other one, I have no clue what team he's on now. Maybe the Spurs. I think he was drafted by the Jazz. Uh, I have no idea. My last answer was some guy from the Celtics who played small forward. I'm James Young is a good board. guess. That was a good guess. Yeah. I got no idea. Okay. And there's also uh, a set, set of twins. Yeah, Does that twins. ring any bells? I knew, I knew the twins. There's a set of twins, Steve. Four seconds. I only, I only know two twins that play right now, and that's uh, – the Lopez twins, and then the, the guys from uh, Nevada. I have no idea. There's more, more twins. Biddy's to win the question. Give me a name. James Ennis. <laughs> James Ennis. No. You were close oh, on the it. other side. Go ahead. <laughs> James Ennis. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the other side? Yeah. Tyler. The Tyler, Tyler side. Hero? No. Tyler Eulis. Tyler Eulis. Uh, all, players also include no winner for that question. Players also include the Harrison twins, Aaron and Andrew. Oh, Willie Colley Stein, uh, Trey Trey Lyles, and then the two hardest names in the question: Dakari Johnson and Alex Poitras. Mm. No winner for that question. We'll do uh, triple points for this final question. 
good luck. Montverde Academy, private prep school in Florida, had one of the most dominant high school hoop seasons in high school basketball history in 2019-2020. They finished 25-0 and and had an average margin of victory of 40 points. In July's NBA draft, four of Montverde's athletes will be selected in the first round. Can you name any of the four athletes from Montverde? All four of them just played in the NCAA tournament. They were on very ranging teams, all the way from a three seed to a nine seed. And each of them are their teams. Yeah, are their team's best player for sure. Go ahead, Biddies. Uh, I will take Cade Cunningham. Cade Cunningham, one correct answer. The two of the three names have been talked about on the podcast today already. Really? I have two of them in my six to 12 range in my mock drafts, and I have one kind of around 25. Uh, how about Timmy? Drew Timmy. No, he was not on the team. He's older. He's 20 years old. So he okay. was. Uh, Moses, Moses Moody? Moses Moody, correct. I don't, think Steve, I don't think Steve has a final answer. Biddies, do you want to close it out? Do you have the third one uh, or the fourth one? Keon Johnson? No, Keon Johnson didn't go to that high school. Florida State and UNC are the two teams here for these two guys. Uh, Scotty Barnes, uh, Barnes. And, and Dayron Sharp. This team was wow. incredible. Uh, if you ever want to go watch high school basketball, which isn't something that I would commonly recommend, <laughs> but that team was ludicrous and very exciting and – as far as scouting Cade Cunningham and being understanding of what his game is going to be at the next level, there's a lot of information you can glean from those high school games that you didn't see in the college tape. Like I was listening to Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosillo talk about Cade Cunningham and they think he's a 40% three point shooter. They think he's like, they're like, Oh, maybe he'll be a B minus Damian Lillard. Like that's who they think Cade Cunningham is because of what they saw at college. So if you want an all-encompassing scope of what he does, he was incredible out there. I watched the game last night. He had a behind-the-back full-court outlet pass. So just, just so you're aware of what happens in, in this tape. It feels but like the behind-the-back was unnecessary. <laughs> no, it was very necessary. A guy came – it wasn't like this. It was like this. It was crazy. It was, it was like over the head. It was someone was coming in to take it away, and it was around multiple defenders. It was out of control. I just recommend, Seamus, that you try to get outside and get some air. This <laughs> quarantine is just you watching high school basketball games from the past, man. I that was pre-quarantine. That's pre-quarantine. Yeah, that, I was watching them live. Come on. All right, oh, we'll, we'll close it out there. Steve, thank you for joining us. I'll see you on your podcast, or you can come back here whenever you want. Biddies, Absolutely. as usual. Open door. It was been a joy. Until next time, go Celtics. Go Orlando Magic. Tank season. Happy Tank Easter. Happy Easter. Good point.